what does the word intentional mean for you? Yeah, so intentional. So doing something in a particularly deliberate and thoughtful way towards achieving a particular end result. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Today is a fun episode for anybody that is in the professional services space or works with professional service firms because we're going to be talking about how to get out of the hamster wheel and the meat grinder of the billable hours world into a world that is a scalable business that is sellable and has something that is not dependent on you. And we have a wonderful guest that is uh, ready to speak to this. His name is Andy Cabasso, and he had a short stint as an attorney, and then his fear of being stuck in that grind for years and decades to come led him to start his firm called the Juris Page, and it was a law firm focused on law firm focused website design internet marketing and seo firm and he had it for a little over three years and then it was acquired by one of their strategic partners and this episode is jam-packed full very practical concepts of why andy decided to start a business instead of becoming instead of having his career be a an attorney and then what he did in the business to keep true to his niche in which helped him on the sales and marketing, how he productizes services through SOPs, he enhances margins, and how the productization and the standardization on his services allowed him to market better and the marketing continued to work better and then allowed him to scale his professional services side and the flywheel that he got going. And he breaks down how he did it, which is fantastic, and the mindset along the way and how he learned. And then he wraps up the last third of the show talking about how he was acquired by his strategic partner and the process they went through in order to know that it was the right process and things that he learned along the way. I just really enjoy this episode, A, because it's applicable to Arcona and what we're doing with the fractional CFO services, but also B, there's so many professional service firms out there that I know that people have the desire to scale and Andy's got a lot of practical ideas on how to do that. And so before we kick it into the episode, I highly recommend if you're wanting to understand how to do the things that Andy's talking about, a lot of the strategies start with the financials so you can see where you are today and how to scale to get where you want to go and project out the future value of the business and the strategies you need to implement. We created an intentional growth financial assessment. It's 23 questions. You don't need your financials, but it gives you a score on each of the four components of a rock solid financial foundation. So that way you can project out the future value of your business and your strategies. Go to Arcona.io, take out, check out the financial assessment. We've also got it in the show notes. And then on the results page, you'll, there's five videos where Pat and I, we break down in these videos what good looks like, which essentially is exactly how Pat was running the private equity firm and the portfolio of companies. So you can see the, the value of the business as an asset and be able to manage your day-to-day decisions very, very effectively. So go check it out, Arcona.io. It's the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment. And with that being said, I will kick it off into the interview. So thank you very much, Andy, for being on the show. And I hope everybody enjoys it. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value. 
giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Good morning, Andy. How are you? I'm good, Ryan. How are you doing? Doing good. I'm uh, super pumped for this conversation because you're in New York and I'm in Minnesota. We have never met. And within two minutes, we realized that we have like two like seriously small world connections. So I feel like I've known you already because uh, I'll give a shout out to Aaron Street <laughs> from Lawyers. <laughs> and, uh, and and the person that acquired you is from Minnesota is what it That's sounds right. like. Yeah. So and you were in the legal space. So let's give the listeners. I want you to just give them the high level flyby, Andy, of like, OK, legal marketing. What was the whole combination? And, uh, and then we'll go back and unpack the story. Yeah, I guess big picture. So I was in law school. I was applying to work at different firms. And then I noticed that every firm I was applying to had a really terrible website. And I was like, I could do something about this. So I, with a friend of mine who was a roommate from college, who was a freelancer, we started a company called Juris Page, which is a small marketing agency focusing on law firms. And it started out as a side business. I practiced law very briefly. And I did a good enough job with our marketing that it took off. And in a very short period of time, in from like in like three years, uh, we were eventually acquired by a larger company in the legal tech space. And yeah, from there onto other startups. And uh, that's the 30 second summary <laughs> of it. it all. Oh, that's great. And what's super fascinating to me, I want to like one one thing that I love is like understanding when you started the business Andy, what was your intent with it like was it like what what did you think it could be now when you look back like what was what was your goals or what was the the original intent um the original intent was probably just very simple like i wanted to make some money with it and i wanted to you know also i was like realizing i i don't want to practice law if i can build a business um that's going to be earn more revenue and pay the bills better than being a lawyer would, I'll call that a win. And probably just like modest goals at the beginning. I, you know, was hoping that I was hoping that I could scale it and that it would take off. I had no idea that it would become an attractive acquisition target in a few years. That kind of was a pleasant surprise, but we did a lot of things to make that happen. Some of it intentional, some of it luck, but yeah, it, it all worked out with how, how it ended up. So, so um, when when I think about the business model that of you know you had an agency, and we can kind of, uh, I'd love to explore your guys's business model and how you guys priced things and like what was actually made it sellable. Because you know how many attorneys I've talked to, Andy, and I'm sure you you as well because you you were what anywhere in the space of you they even get to this point where they're billing 500 bucks an hour and they can't get out of that hamster wheel it's like yeah you might be able to pull in a million two million in revenue if you got like leverage with associates but you're still in this billable machine that you can't sell and these practices it's all earnouts over four years so how did that impact well, or did it impact your decision on like when you were going to the, the becoming an entrepreneur i'm like glad that you bring this up like very organically that was something i was terrified about in law school, something I didn't really fully appreciate before I applied, but very much your value for practicing law is your billable hour. 
no matter how productive or efficient you can be, if I can bring in ways to automate things and streamline things, if I'm working for a larger firm, they care mostly about how much time I'm spending billing because that is how I bring in money and that's how I get paid. That's my value is associated with my time. And so if I become super efficient, that works against me. If I am if I type faster than my colleagues, if I know Excel macros and things like that, that works like that felt it felt like it was working against me. And so uh, that was particularly unexciting for me in terms of the like the practice. And if I were to go to try to go to like a bigger law firm or something like that. Right. Because like, yeah, like I said, like your your revenue is tied to hour and a billable rate, um, not at all tied to productivity. Well, and, and, and it's so interesting because this concept is not, it's, it, it's the productivity of the day. Like you just said mm-hmm. of like billing. And so you're, you're in this machine of billing. And then if you don't, obviously that's, that's non-utilized hours. But then, like mm-hmm. you said, you could streamline your day-to-day activities, but no matter what, like I think about the challenge and, and uh, Aaron Street and I were talking about this at some point is like, these law firms and you know CPA firms are very similar. It's slightly different because they got other services, but like they're not really sellable in, unless they can do other things. It's like mm-hmm. a three-year earnout while the partners are sitting on the beach making a bunch of money, and you know the next generation's slogging through to in order to, <laughs> to right, actually because, pay their retirement. Right, because all the all the value is all the value of the business is tied to how much money you can keep generating and how much <laughs> right. how much more time you can keep spending on it, but like the like the dream for like most small businesses is to scale it to a point where you can remove yourself from the day to day and you can have the business run without you and make money without you and that is an asset but if you, if the business can't function without you spending time and your labor and efforts on it then it's not a business it's a job mm-hmm. and if you're trying to get it acquired you're selling a job so how did that concept and your your very real exposure to it impact certain decisions when you started your firm like because like again a, a lot of agent digital agencies are very similar business models as a law firm right it's billable hours and or it's you know maybe making a spread on some freelancers so like maybe walk us through the business model and how your your exposure from the legal world impacted your decisions so the main things that we were shooting for from the beginning um not just from my experience in uh the legal space, but also my co-founder's previous experience freelancing was that he didn't want to go chasing from new from project to project, which was a lot of his experience as a freelancer too. So we had that common background. So we wanted to make sure from the beginning that all of our projects would be productized services. So fixed scope with fixed deliverables, none of this scope creep where, oh, just let me add one more thing. Just let me add one more thing. Let's keep this project going on forever. Now, fixed scope and recurring revenue for everything. So none of our web design projects, none of our marketing projects would be a one-off project basis. We were never in a, We were never going to take on clients where we would just build them a website, hand it off, and then they would move it to their own GoDaddy or Bluehost hosting or whatever, and then take it from there. Our offer and our pitch was on ongoing service. So we design your website. We'd host it, we'd provide ongoing marketing support, help you with your blog, help you get uh, with your paid search and things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and that was our approach. And er- like early on, 
uh, we had plenty of people and yeah, towards even the end, like we had plenty of people who would come to us and say, let me write you a check, just build my website and I'll take it from here. And we would just, we turned them down. We said, that's not our model. I, I can refer you to plenty of other people if that's what you're looking for, but that's, that's just not our model. And so us being very disciplined about this recurring revenue model made it so that we could really scale that recurring revenue and have that MRR that mm -hmm. like SaaS businesses have and make the business in asset and something valuable so that if I were to go on vacation for two weeks, we could still have cash coming in and revenue coming in and we can pay the bills and it not be so reliant that I make a new sale this week or this month mm -hmm. and have more, more and more uh, business coming in. So Andy, that is... It I love and totally agree with everything you said. The, the question that I have is it, it, it's so hard to say no to the dollars that are sitting in front of you for those big jobs. Hey, here's a check, Andy. It, and by the hurts. way, you're a star. <laughs> there you go. Think it, it hurts, right? How did you, so what kept you grounded and convicted that what you're do what you were doing was the right thing? Uh, insanity. Um, <laughs> like I, so we, we, we're, there were two aspects of business that we would turn away regularly. We would turn away one-off projects and we would turn away customers that weren't in our niche and our niche being law firms. Um, and so like we sometimes had uh, law firms that were like, hey, we have this sister business that's a CPA firm or can I refer you to a friend of mine who's an accountant? And we turned them away. We, we said, sorry, that's not our space that... We, we can't help you with that. And they were like, well, but why not? It's like similar. Here's my money, Andy, take it. <laughs> and like, we like, we want, we we're here. We want to pay you thousands of dollars. Just design our website, just please. And we, we turned it away. We would refer them elsewhere because one other piece of the puzzle was that in us having this productized service, we had a very specific streamlined process with stages of the way where like, okay, so it's a law firm website. Here's our checklist of what we need at this stage. And everything is fixed scope. So we know exactly what we need. Like we need bio information. How many lawyers do they have? What's what's their mm. bios? Uh, what are their practice areas? And and so on. And it's it was very easy for us over time to make make that like assembly line process and make sure that we would know what we need at every stage of the way. Mm -hmm. But if someone with a very different type of business were to come in, it wouldn't fit into our processes, but also we wouldn't, we would have to, we'd be starting from scratch in a lot of ways because after designing dozens or hundreds of law firm websites, we had a lot of assets that we could use over and over again, uh, uh, layouts for like homepage or bio pages and things like that. And like, if we were to take on like a restaurant website, we don't know exactly like what are the best plugins that we need for like having a menu or something or mm -hmm. galleries and things. And it was like having to figure all that out. There would be a lot of extra time that we would need to be spending on the first project uh, that wouldn't we wouldn't be able to leverage that knowledge in the future. But like after like doing our first website, we spent a lot more time than we spent on the hundredth website. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that institutional knowledge, that knowledge base that we get from doing more and more sites uh, that are similar and similar scope and things like that. We can use that in the future, but for like something that's completely different, we would have to charge significantly more and it would felt like it would just be a distraction. 
So did you ever have a time where you took someone on and you learned that the hard way? Because like, that was very clear on how, how specific you were about why you didn't want it. But how did you learn that? I, I'm trying to think if there was like a specific, like specific example. Like now I'm talking about it now. I'm like, yeah, that sounds all well and good. But like, did, like, did we make any particular like mistake? I'd say that there were a few, I guess, a few projects that we took that were like, the, I guess, like the first time that we take a, pro a project on that's like a very big in scope uh, that was more than we were used to like probably like the first time we handled a website where they, they had like the site in like many different languages or a site with like thousands of team members where we were previously working with like firms with a few to a few dozen people there were a lot of things that we like learned that first time that we were like okay you know what like this we spent a lot more time and it cost us a lot more to do this project, but on the bright side, we've we've learned this now, and now we can adequately price for this in the future, and we can we can build mm. for this. But let's be like take this opportunity to be, to be mindful that if we were to take on a project like this in a different space, we couldn't leverage that knowledge in the future. Mm -hmm. I, I think that was probably the thing that like really resonated the most. Um, I, I just think the reason behind the question too, and, and that's um, that's a good example is like. Whether it was my old business and manage IT, or even honestly with our Kona and the fractional CFO services, and like I learned the hard way, apparently. Because <laughs> <laughs> like I take a client on, you're like, whoa, that's outside of our scope. And then you're dealing with headaches and you know, miss expectations or whatever it might be. So it's hard. And usually those good lessons come from a lot of pain. And the, the other thing that you would mention that I'm very curious on when you talked about productization or like the, mm -hmm. the standardization. So well, give maybe give the us the definitions in your minds and your or your your mind about the and your philosophy mm -hmm. of productization of a service versus normal services and what mm -hmm. differentiates the two and how did you guys go about doing that? Now I kind of feel like any service should be really productized. So like for any ser for a service like web design or for consulting or for legal services, depending on what it is. Typically, like you might have like a billable rate, like, all right, we're, we're consulting for you. It'll be $200 an hour. And here's what like the big goal is that we're looking to achieve. And we may be able to give you some estimates of range of what the pricing will be. But uh, we'll see when we get there because things can creep up like and like just like with a legal engagement, like mm -hmm. like I'm going to here's my retainer. Here's my billable hour. And, you know, things can come up. And so while this may seem straightforward at first, if things go like things can go off the rails and if the other side fights us on this, then it's going to cost, cost a lot more, but we can't predict for that. So the idea of a productized service is for creating very fixed scope projects so that nothing is a surprise that you can adequately price for it. No, like knowing generally the range of time it's going to take you um, and making these processes very repeatable so that whether you have like what they're your first client mm -hmm. or your 10th or hundredth client, they all go through the same process. So like for like web design, for example, we'd say like, all right, you're going to get a website that has like it's brand new site. It'll have 10 pages, a homepage, bio page, practice area pages, contact page, and all of that. And we'll provide content for it with this many words. And you'll provide us with headshots and things like that and then here's what our process is so that 
we could price for it and we can have like a fixed price and say, the price for the site is going to be this. You're not going to pay more. You're not going to pay less. And we internally know like, here's what our margin is going to be on average, mm -hmm. give or take a few hours that it's going to give or take mm -hmm. a few hours. It may be quicker, maybe longer, but we, we create a price that factors that in. And then the whole thing has a fixed scope. And so if someone wants something else that's beyond the scope of what we agreed on, well, that that's an add on that's additional pricing or something like that, but it's not going to go off the rails and it's not going to have this project drag on forever. Mm -hmm. And so everything kind of has like milestones and you can, the great thing about this is you can build a team on your side that can deliver for this repeatedly. And so you can say like, all right, so the client signs on, well, here's our intake stage and here's what we need from them at this stage. Um, and then here is this next stage where we do the mock-up. Here's our checklist. Here's what we need to do. And because it's all fixed scope fixed, like with these product products, you can easily deliver on them. There's not so much like wiggle room and <laughs> uncertainty that like yeah. you as like an owner or founder need to be involved in every step of the way by having these fixed projects, you can really delegate to the team and make it so they can run things without you. That's also a very important thing there too. Well, and it's it, what I, what I heard a couple things is that productization in your mind, let me know if I'm on track or off track on mm -hmm. this is that it's standardization of the process. So it's not like you have to build a SaaS tool for your agency. This is like, I, like you guys went about and said, I know exactly the price. And so it's a product because you understand what you're doing so well. And what's also fascinating about that, Andy, is that it's probably, I don't know, did you experience like this like flywheel where like the more that you succeeded on the back end like that, the easier it was to sell and say no to other shit that you know is going to mess up the system? Like, did you have some sort of like point where you're like, this is working the right way? Yeah. And it, it, to be clear, like we didn't get it right on day one. Like, it, it, like, like I don't want to, like, I don't want to come off like some sort of genius who's got it all figured out. It was a very iterative process. The, like the tools and like the project management tools we were using on day one compared to where we were years down the line were different. Our processes were different. What we had uh, in our contracts and things like that were different, but it was a learning process for us. Um, and we were able to further refine things and it, it got better over time. Like we recognized that like, okay, like we didn't like, uh, maybe a good example, uh, with our pricing, like we would have milestone pricing. So you sign up today, you're going to put down a deposit of like 50% and that will get this kicked off. And then when the site launches, whenever that might be, that'll be when you pay the I guess the next, uh, the other remaining 50% of the setup fee. And then at that mm -hmm. point, the ongoing MRR charges will be there. The problem that we had was we then had a few dozen clients where, oh yeah, like, Hey, I know that we owe you our headshots and our bios, uh, but we're, you know, busy with this. We'll get that to you soon. Don't worry about it. And like, we've had some clients that were, we were waiting on for years. <laughs> And like, we couldn't charge them the MRR. Like we were still waiting, like wouldn't get the second payment, but like every week we would have this repeatable process of 
reach out to them to follow up like hey we're still waiting on you for this mm -hmm. can we like if you want we can send a photographer there will be an extra charge we'll send a photographer to your firm to take a picture of you that we could put on the website and so like we were, we were like oh, hand, hold your hand the whole way so we can get our money <laughs> so but then over time our contract iterated to be we'll charge you this percent on day one this percent on the first deliverable of the site design the first mock-up and then the last milestone payment on either it was like two or three months or when the site launches whichever comes first and then we're charging you the recurring charges by then hmm. and that we found really incentivized people uh, who didn't have everything that they needed by that like three month or two month mark to get us those assets because they're being we're getting recurring charged and so uh that made sure that like we also could make our revenue more predictable that all right if we sign this here's what the cash flow situation looks like and also like it got our projects through the pipeline much faster mm -hmm. uh, for for our clients in particular who are lawyers you know they're billing 500 dollars an hour and they didn't have time to uh, schedule a photographer or to write down their biography for their bio page but getting that next charge created some urgency and that <laughs> yeah. that really moved things along a lot faster so so yeah That's so awesome. our product productization it was an iterative process it wasn't on day one what it ended up being years later mm -hmm. but we were like working to improve that as we as we saw things that were like holdups or or whatnot but yeah well, constantly what's so, so fascinating too is you, you i caught something in there which i think is so important is that you were able to forecast out the cash flow based on the projects, that's because they're predictable. How did that then impact your scaling on the sales and marketing to, because obviously, I mean, in three years, man, like you did a lot of work and you, I mean, you talk about hundreds of firms and websites you're talking about. Like, so how did that launch you and allow it? Like what was your sales and marketing strategies to scale like you did? So I, it was, a, to be honest, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, it was like, this was, like my first real go of a business and i had no idea what i was doing i felt like and so like i was trying every marketing tactic and channel i could some things worked well others didn't like i like i tried cold a little bit of cold emailing and and that didn't work and but n like now i'm doing a lot of cold emailing and it's hitting a lot better i know what i'm doing now years later but like that didn't work out so well i did like paid ads and it worked okay but like for us like the like the marketing channels that worked best were our seo and content marketing and partnerships in particular mm. and so like i spent a lot of time on our content marketing and like honestly i felt like in, in hindsight now I, I was like you had no idea what you were doing but you really lucked out in that you you like really understood like your, I, we understood the target market i knew who i wanted to connect with and so I was creating content uh, geared towards them at a time when I thought they would be looking for a, a website. And so like, I wouldn't just write like blog articles about how to hire a law firm web designer or something like that. Because like, if I did write articles like that, like that's very like in the sales funnel, bottom of funnel, that's like mm -hmm. when someone's ready to hire. Mm -hmm. But those like terms were very competitive and we had a relatively young site. And so I wasn't going to outcompete a marketing agency that was around for 10 years before we even started. So I went the angle of like really 
I, I interviewed a lot of our clients and just like, as I was just like talking with them through the sales process and things like that, I wanted to understand where they were when they were coming to us and where they were in their cycle of their practice. And so a lot of them were like just starting up their practice um, and they were not just looking for websites, but they were looking for like IT solutions and other software. And so we, I, I wrote a lot of content about software for law firms, like practice management software for law firms and things like that. And we ranked very well for it. I created like downloadable, like lead magnets and guides and things like that. So I would get people's email addresses. And then once they would like download these guides, I would have an email sequence of content that would start out geared towards the type of content they were downloading. So like practice management software for law firms. And then slowly over time, that content would change to, well, if, you know, as you're gearing up your practice and looking at new product, product uh, you know, product, bleh, management software, mm -hmm. how about building a, your firm's web presence and being able to attract new clients and impress the clients that are getting referred to you and built like really building out that kind of content funnel. That was a big source of our traffic. Uh, and it, it just worked out, out very well that like I was really in tune with what our clients were interested in and where they were and being able to like Speak go about them. go like hit them in a different angle than other mar the marketing agencies were. Well, and what I'm taking in away from this too, Andy, and I want to get into mm -hmm. some of the content marketing strategies too, because that's also heavily what you're involved in today is like, man, like the amount of professional service organizations that I've worked with is in, like, and again, like totally guilty of this, of like need revenue, say yes. And then like, you're reinventing the wheel, like you said, every single time. And it's so hard to get out of that hamster wheel. But not only from the operations and the cash flow and the expectations on the back end, like you said, that, that you already covered, if you don't have like a standardization of your clients, you can't talk to everybody about everything all the time, everywhere. <laughs> it's like, right? I mean, right. like you were so, spo so specific that you understood, you actually understood and talked to them like a reasonable human being. I, I mean, like, I don't know if that's too simple, but <laughs> no, well, well, that was like part of what, what part of our marketing was we were in this niche. We were law firm marketing. So just doing web design for law firms. And I know that there are like some marketing agencies that even, even pared that down further. So they were like marketing for personal injury firms only. Mm -hmm. And that, like, that's our bread and butter. That's specifically what we can speak to. And they would create content geared towards that. And their messaging would be all geared towards that because we're not just competing with other law firm marketing companies. We're competing with the mom and pops, the local web design and marketing agencies in your city and like the people that you're meeting at BNIs and like <laughs> yeah. networking meetings and things. And yeah. so you're getting like a card from someone's like, oh yeah, I do web design and marketing. And uh, I know the, uh, the Minneapolis landscape very well and I can help you rank for your business. But our pitch was, well, whatever another marketing agency is telling you, if, it, if their first time marketing a law firm, you can't market a law firm like you market a restaurant in Minneapolis, regardless, but you can market a law firm in Minneapolis, similar or personal injury law firm in Minneapolis, simpler to how you'd uh, market a personal mm -hmm. injury firm in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. um, there is you know, going to be some geographic differences, but the way that we market these types of practices is going to be generally the same. And having that expertise, like, and this was like a, a nice thing that I could pitch as well. Like I am a lawyer, I have a legal background and I can also help to make sure that 
you're not running afoul of ethics issues, which was like a, a big thing that a lot of lawyers were concerned about Not a lot of well. web designers are dropping that phrase. <laughs> 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 That's awesome. So, so Andy, like on this topic and, and I'm using some of the, my current situations at Arcona with and the intentional growth podcast and training that, you know, content marketing is one of our things, but like, you know, even if we know, it, like the people that are listening in, I think they're one of the most amazing things that I've kind of come to the realization that B2B and B2C, you need, like, that's the first lens, like the B2C, your marketing is mm -hmm. so different. It's client acquisition. You just pile things into ads and people are clicking on social media to buy. B2C is like, and especially services, it's, you need to prove that you are actually worth a shit and you have, you know what you're doing and that they're going to engage with you and it's going to be legit, which is very, very um, it, uh, set up to do content marketing like you're talking about. The question that I think a lot of people have is how do you determine what's working, what's not working and what to say and then where to, you know, where to actually partner up with these people online. And so maybe can you kind of give an overview of the strategy and how you did this? Because I think a lot of people can learn a lot from what you did and then also what you're doing right now. So I, there, there's, a, there's a lot here, but I guess in terms of like, like things like partnership channels that we did, um, we made a lot of partnerships, like referral partnerships or like advertising partnerships where we pay like a spiff to uh, another comp like complimentary company in our industry um, or like like a referral fee or like if you're a SaaS business, like an affiliate, like just like finding affiliates and things like that. And we spent a lot of time like cultivating those. And I'll say that like 90% of them sent us nothing. And <laughs> but yep. like 10% of them sent us a ton of business. Um, like, yeah, we like we partnered with some like legal oriented publications that sent us a lot of good, like qualified mm. leads each month and things like that. And like, that was like, a, that was a particularly great channel. And so like, we hey, can were you explain, no, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. can you explain like what you mean by partner? Like, so what did that actually yeah. look like? And what were you doing for them that incentivized them to, to give you guys the leads? Sure. So like different, I guess different situations would call for different things and we'd have different arrangements, but basically we would find like, we'd like research the landscape. We see like, all right, so what are our customers and potential customers reading? What are they using? What are they interested in? And other vendors, basically, I would reach out to them and say, hey, uh, so uh, we probably have some overlap with our customers. We here's what we can do for you. Like, I'm, I'm happy to do a really in-depth write up of your product and refer people to your product and get people to sign up for your product. Like we got a good amount of traffic. And so I'm happy to prioritize you in exchange. Like, could you, if you have customers and you're like, if you're interviewing them and onboarding them and see that they have like a bad website, uh, refer them or introduce them to us. And like, we could pay you a referral fee for either leads or for new signed customers. And maybe there can be like some ongoing, like, arrangement or something like that it similar to like how i would like pitch affiliates today mm -hmm, and so like mm -hmm. like today like with a SaaS business i do a lot of outreach to uh other blogs and websites that are affiliates of or that, that i see that are either in our space or that i see that they are active affiliates of other products in this space and so the i reach out to them and pitch them like hey i'm happy to promote your product um we also have like an affiliate program if that's interesting to you and if, yeah, you send, if you mm -hmm. send clients our way, then you make money. It's a win-win. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and, and I think what's in, the what's interesting too for the for the listeners that have more of like a traditional sales and marketing approach, like you mentioned BNI, right? It's a lot of the networking. We're yeah. like in the online space. You I mean you're writing and developing good content for these? So it's like almost like networking online with content. Oh, but you're, you're kind of hitching and each other's. For ahead. me, I found that worked a lot better. I I was part of a BNI chapter for a one to two years, something like that, and it yielded me I think nothing in terms of like actually closed business. I know like some BNI chapters are like very like very profitable and doing well for everybody. Uh, but like for me, like my customers, my target customers weren't just in the New York area. They were everywhere online and like a referral from a, a mortgage broker who knows a lawyer isn't like going to be a, a great referral just because they know a lawyer. And I got like, I got plenty of leads from people who are like, Hey, I like, because like the BNI mantra is like just to keep referring people and keep generating leads. But I would often get like lawyers referred to me who didn't really weren't really invested in getting a new website. But for like partner vendors who are online and have their own online businesses, SaaS businesses, other service businesses, they could refer people to us. And like they're doing a lot of volume and a lot of volume with my target audience. And so it's much more likely that they could find people that are a good fit for us that are ready or in the process of like discovery process to find uh, a service like ours and mm -hmm. getting that referral, getting that recommendation makes it much more likely it's going to close and be like a successful deal because it comes from a referral. And like, the conversation is yeah. ha taking place when the conversation is supposed to be happening, right? Not because right. you're in a physical space and you wanted to refer someone. They're like they're online looking for something and it actually makes sense why it's referred together. And and I don't know, like so as we're as we're progressing down the the only yeah. year, thir the three year journey, which is ridiculously short, is this is a more scalable and repeatable sales process as well versus going to a bunch of BNI. So how did this <laughs> you know, yeah. was it hockey stick growth on the revenue side or like what what did this do to your guys' uh revenue in the firm? Yeah. So it yeah, I mean, it was like, like I said, like it was a lot of trial and error there. Like, you know, years later, I, I'm like, I'm more confident in like channels and things like that. I would have like spent less time on like paid search and more time on like certain types of partnerships. Cause like at first I was just trying to build partnerships with everyone I could, but yeah, knowing now like that 90% of them weren't a good fit, I know a bit better about what is a good fit and like what is a more interesting incentive to these partners and things like that because also like a very common thing was that with new partners everyone would be excited at first like all right great i'm so excited to be working together let's do a webinar together and we'll introduce each other to to our audiences and then nothing after that <laughs> like there might be like a little Been bit there man <laughs> but <laughs> But like the most fruitful partnerships were ones where like there was this continued incentive and where the, the other where the partner has a funnel, has a system that can easily feed into the referred business. Mm -hmm. And so like for like a SaaS business, something like an affiliate, like having an affiliate program, an affiliate link or something like that can be helpful. Like for now, like, for example, for now, I reach out to a lot of websites that are affiliate sites that are where I know that they are making their money from referring people to products and making recurring revenue from that. So 
knowing that that is their business model, I want to have an attractive offer for them. I want to like I want to incentivize them to send people my way. And so what can help with that? One, having an easy to sign up for affiliate program Two, having assets that they could use because they're going to want to like create an article or, or some piece of content or series of content that re that relate to my product so that they can send people my way. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, really making sure that I can make it as easy as possible for the people who are going to be able to send customers my way is, is very important. So where in this three plus little over three year journey did all of a sudden someone knock on the door like what happened and how did how did the whole acquisition and the buyer surface yeah so the buyer came from a partner that we had so we had been partnering with other other vendors other firms and other software companies and things like that and one partner of ours was a an outsourced uh, it company focusing on legal and we were planning like just i was it was like before a conference like a few weeks before a conference making plans to meet up with people and all of that and they were like oh yeah well we're hope to see you at new york for this legal conference by the way like like you know we have a lot of mutual customers we're both clearly going after the same market um you know we provide complementary kind of services are you potentially interested in being acquired? We're we're interested in getting in that marketing space and having that offer for our customers. What do you think? And I was kind of like, probably not, but let's talk. If like <laughs> I, I was I was not ready for that. And I like in hindsight, I feel like in hindsight, I think I had a lot of the pieces in place, but it wasn't something I was intentionally planning towards from the beginning um but we did things i think right from the beginning like at least we covered a lot of what it, you did right, right so far man <laughs> yeah. that, that made it attractive and made it work out and so like like they're in they're, they're, they're interested in our model and we're like all right well we have recurring revenue and we have this book of mrr and this is what our like projections are based on our history and based on our channels and uh our just our model this is where we think we're gonna be and so like, all right, they're like, all right, well, that's great. Like that, like, so like this business is an asset. Now there's something of value here, but not just the MRR. We also have this brand that we've created, like us doing, like focusing on the legal vertical and marketing for the legal vertical, but also us building out this content marketing machine. We've got this blog that has a ton of traffic. We've been doing webinars. We've been creating guides and pieces of content that are getting a, a lot of traffic. Um, so that we're like, we are pretty well known in our, in the space. That was another thing in intangible that was something that the other, that the acquiring company thought was really valuable. And so, um, did you know, what was your level of understanding of valuations and like what your company could be worth? And did you have any idea of what that meant to you personally? I, I, I had no idea. Like it wasn't really, like, it wasn't really on my radar at, at all. Like I was just. Like my, my goal was like, I want to increase our revenue so I can increase the amount that I take home. Um, <laughs> yeah, very, very straightforward information, right? Like, like, here's the goal. Take more, more revenue equals more cash flow. <laughs> right. Like, I wish I could say like, I, I hear like these things I'm trying to optimize for, but like, I, like I knew what our margins were. I, I knew what our growth trajectory was. And I like, my goal was to 
as best I could increase the amount of customers that we were taking in from month to month. And so, yeah, in terms of like valuation, I had, I had no idea what a, what a appropriate valuation would be. But at the same time, I was like, we're a three-year-old company. We're still like in early growth mode. I'm not like, I'm just not thinking about valuations because I'm not, I'm, this is not something that I think was like ready to sell at that point. So then what process or what information or resources did you lean into to figure out what this was going to mean to you and what your options were? So like in terms of like making the decision to sell, like my, my co-founder and I were like, all right, so like here are our, like, and I, I, I hate financial projections cause they always seem to be crazy wrong. Um, <laughs> like I, I, I've started a lot of, I started a lot of projects over the years. And if there's like one thing that is consistent, it's that like revenue and projection, like projections just are wildly off. There are like plenty of things that you don't think about and account for. Um, and so like, but anyway, I digress. Um, so, but like we, at the time, like, we're like, all right, so like, here are our conservative projections. Here are our projections for the next few years. Like, here's where we see this going. Any offer that we're going to entertain has to like, has to be like significant, like significantly so. more than this because we are we we have this asset and here's if we put in this effort moving forward, here's where it's going to be. And so, yeah, where where do we like? Do we want to keep working at this towards this trajectory, or do we sell it and then move on to another business? Um, what do we want to do? And so, like that, those were conversations that me and my like co-founder were having at the time. Yeah. Were there any difficult parts of those conversations or were any times where you guys didn't really understand which direction to go? Well, like it's, it's a, to, to sell a business is like a, is a tough call. Like I was trying to look at it like as objectively as possible. The, but like, of course, like, like on all of the content and all of the branding, like my name was very heavily associated with it. Uh, I was the one doing presentations. I was the one speaking at like CLE, like continuing legal education conferences and things like that. And so like for the past few years, like this had been very wrapped up with, it feels like wrapped up with my identity. Right. And mm -hmm. moving on to something else, possibly in a new space, which like is new and exciting. Mentally, I like really tried to be objective to be like, okay, like here's where we're at. Here's our trajectory. Here are our numbers. If you have this asset and this is where it is, what would you tell someone else to do? So like, I found like, like that was probably like taking it from like that angle was particularly interesting because, um, I think about when people are like doing like salary negotiations and things like that, things can get like, things can get personal and like you have emotional attachments. And so like, you know, you've got that friend who like won't ask for a raise or like isn't isn't fighting for a raise or isn't quitting a job to change to where they can get like significantly more because of just emotional factors and like you're on the sidelines like coaching them like no here's what you should do so easy man yeah right. just take the stick easy, out of your like, eye easier said than done when you're <laughs> so close to it like there are those emotional attachments and you'll you know make justifications in your head and but if it if it were someone else you would be telling them like, oh, this is so obvious, like here is the clear objective choice to make. And so I, I try to take it from the perspective, like step back, take like a look, look at the big picture. What would you tell someone else if this were them what mm -hmm. to do? 
Did you guys um did you guys hire a broker, investment banker, and try to get like once you guys decided that it was time to sell, like what was the process you guys went through? So the um so like when like the so the other side had a uh had a uh broker person and ad, consultant advisor something and um that was like that person was like leading the discussion on their end on from our end uh when it was getting to be more real i i did bring on a lawyer um like you, you knew a couple probably <laughs> yeah I, I knew a couple i got a recommendation and uh that, that worked out but like i i, I was like my partner is like do you want to handle this and i'm like absolutely not i'm not a I'm not an M&A lawyer like I like I I've never done a deal like this before like I I like on like paper I'm sure like I could read a deal and be like all right well here is something but I I'm not going to know what I I don't know what I don't know I don't know what are what's commonly seen in these agreements and things like that I don't I don't know everything that can go wrong if if we sign this and I personally don't want you to blame me if I miss something. So let's hire a lawyer. Let's pay them some money and we'll have peace of mind that this was done right. Um, but on our end, we like we thankfully had some advisors that we could turn to and mentors. And so we reached out to them and we just got like their opinions and they, they gave us some feedback and gave us some coaching. And that was that was particularly helpful to us. But I'd say like, yeah, if you're going through an acquisition for the first time, whether it's the buyer or seller, um, I would, well, one, like if, like if this is potentially like a life changing amount of money, if it's um, like going to be a big change for you, obviously if this business is big. If it's, you know, you want to make sure that it, you're doing it right. Make sure that you're not, you know, getting messed with and that um, you have the right people around you. So like have advisors, have, uh, yeah, have have a good lawyer. That people that have done for. their done done it before, right? Like people who have done this before, absolutely. <laughs> did you did you uh, any of the people you're talking to? Did you did you get other buyers involved, or like what was your what was your philosophy on that? So the kind of like the second like this potential buyer came and came to us and was like, "Hey, we're interested in acquiring you." I, I was like, "All right, well, if uh, like if if this is like situation is presenting itself, like." I would certainly think let's find out what our market rate is and let's see what what uh what other people would be interested in paying like if we present it to them. And so I reached out to my network, I reached out to some other vendors and I was like, "Hey, uh there's a company that might be acquiring us and like like big strokes and all of this, like big picture and everything. Is this uh would you be interested in acquiring us? And like if so, what things are you looking for and what ranges are, are we talking about uh before like we like go further in i don't want to like waste your time but just let's talk in like theoreticals and stuff like that and so there were uh, a few people that we were talking to uh about this at the same time and uh which was like good for us to help us really understand like at this stage where like what our value would be and like what like what structures other companies would be thinking about and so that, that gave us some good insights as well. And I'd love to pull that thread. That's perfect. Yeah. Is that the, the differences like that these buyers were, how did they, what were the different or if they were different approaches to the valuation? Mm -hmm. And then the second part of that is the, the structure, like you mentioned, because yeah. you could, you could have 
those are two huge levers yeah. that have, or huge spectrums that have a lot of different potential in them. Sure. So like on one end of the spectrum, like uh, one company reached out to us that actually had like perfect timing. A company reached out to us saying that they're interested in acquiring us. They were in not the same industry, but they were doing uh, marketing for another space. It was like medical or something okay. like that. And they were like, they were interested in our brand equity and they basically wanted our brand so that they could take their processes and bring that into the legal space and mm -hmm. they were interested in our brand and they were interested in our mrr our processes and workflows they would probably scrap in favor of theirs which was working for them and they were a much mm -hmm. bigger company mm -hmm. and so like for them like valuation was like they were thinking evaluation based on like the intangibles of like our, our traffic and what they could sense of our brand equity in our space which you know is a little ill-defined but it gives you some wiggle room right mm -hmm. uh and then there's like the mrr and the recurring revenue that you have but for like i but for like a company that is really trying to uh that is that is in the same vertical that's maybe doesn't offer the services that you have currently mm -hmm. that's like looking to get into that evaluation might not be just based on the book of business or the or the intangibles but also might be related to the processes that you've built in internally and stuff like that that they could leverage and that knowledge base and everything like that and so like that that like so like we were seeing very different ways that like companies were like assigning value to the business and it basically like what they wanted to do with your business right and how did exactly that, andy was it was it a, like in in based on how you would you know productize your services was it a valuation based on a multiple of revenue or a multiple of EBITDA or like how did these buyers place, how did they, what was the method they actually went through to actually value the business? So some, so I'd say that some people, their valuation was very based on like ARR and like, ba yeah, based on like revenue metrics and things like that. And others, like I, other people that we like, we were getting into discussions with were like, like yeah, like they were they were interested in recurring revenue, but like they were also interested in, I guess in the brand and like use leveraging our brand and uh, that kind of equity. And so they're like given like that we were a company for like three years at this time that we're like getting interest. Like our revenue numbers w were I would say nothing spectacular that absent an amazing revenue or EBITDA multiple. Uh, would it have been interesting to us? Uh, because like I said, like we're a young company, we are in growth mode. Mm -hmm. Our, like our EBITDA, I would say was like, <laughs> like, like we're paying ourselves, we're paying our contractors and like we're investing in a lot of different marketing channels that some of which like feel like we're still, we were still figuring out, uh, but we had some direction on. But like, if I were to shut off the valve of spend on paid ads that I was trying to see if they would work, or, or things like that and like be like a more like operate like a more mature business where we had things figured out and were leaner we we would have much higher like ebitda but like that wouldn't wouldn't have been the case for us at that at the time and so like like we were we were saying to the these different companies like like you, if you try and make us an offer based on ebitda or recurring revenue we're probably not going to be interested and like upfront like here's why we're yeah we're a mm -hmm. relatively mm -hmm. small company relatively young and we're in growth mode now and 
here's what our, our current trajectory looks like. And you can see that mm -hmm. and like, we'll, you know, sign NDAs and go through all that. And you can see what that is. And like, this is what, what the path is that we're on. And so here's where like, we've built up our brand in the space and you can see that. And so we're going to have to negotiate around a little, like a little bit of like we're gonna have to, have to find some like different metrics or, or blue sky, right? Nice lingo, lingo of the blue sky and the the brand equity. And hey, how Andy, like, because I actually had this gentleman on. His name is Lowell, and he was uh, an investment banker for SaaS companies. And he actually was a corporate buyer, so they would go out and strategically acquire companies. He's like, it all had to do with like what we could do with the business, right? right. So like, it wasn't necessarily multiple V, but because like we buy this business, this is what it could do to our company. Yeah, which I'm assuming absolutely. was a lot of how those buyers were approaching it. How did what the buyer wanted to do with your business? Did it did the buyers and what they wanted to do with it impact the deal structure that they offered you guys? Like, did you have a spread of deal structures or different types? So, I uh, I guess yeah, I I, I guess uh, to speak to that, like what what I what I'm what I can speak to mm -hmm. when we were talking with like different buyers, like this is exactly the the situation that we were finding ourselves in, which was like. Uh, a company that was a company that might be in our space, in our market, doing like marketing for our audience. They just wanted our book of business and our brand to fold into their processes and things like that. And so like their idea of our valuation would be particularly lower than a company that is not yet in our space, but looking to get into the space and cross sell mm -hmm. product, our product to their existing large base of customers. There's a lot more value that they can extract from this business than what uh, someone else could. Then same kind of situation for a company that is not in our market yet and has no brand in our market, but is looking to get into our market. And so like mm -hmm. that, that's, that was absolutely the case. Like exactly what you're saying, different businesses with different like approaches to like what they could do with our business dramatically affected what they saw as the valuation. Did, did that also impact, like you said, one of them was going to scrap your processes. One of them was going to keep them. That's very similar, Andy. Like mm -hmm. when we sold our business, one wanted to keep everything as is because they wanted to get into our geographic area. Mm -hmm. So therefore there wasn't as many synergies and the, the value was way lower than the one that we sold to, which was tons of overlap, tons of synergies and a lot of, uh, so it's a higher purchase price. But on, on your situation, but based on like, you know, keeping the SOPs and the, and the people versus not, did that impact like, a percentage of the purchase price that went to earn out or went to cash up front. Like, you know, like, and again, you don't have to give the percentage or anything, but that did it impact like what they wanted to do with you and how, how you guys were going to hold the risk or not hold the risk after, after the deal. Yeah. So I guess I can, you know, the, this information is public. So like I stayed on for a few years after the fact and like part of, part of what they were like, were interested in aside from the business was like, was our processes and was our brand. And I was like very personally, tied to the brand because I was the marketing and uh, maybe like in uh, being mindful of this for the future of trying to like really build that business that you can remove yourself from. If you are the face of the business and if you are the brand that that's going to like tie you to the, to the business. Right. And so um, like, yeah, by me being a lot of the brand, like that was something that the, that the company was interested in. And so Maybe I don't, I'm, yeah, I'm losing a, my thread a little bit. No, no, but. that's okay. Cause like, I, I, you don't have to disclose all the different de deal structures. I just think, and specifically like in agencies, Andy, where like, I mean, I've had plenty of agencies on the show that I've either sold or like people that have acquired agencies. And it's a lot of three-year earnout because it's people doing mm -hmm. the deliverables. And I'm just curious, like, did you now, when you look back, mm -hmm. the way that you built the agency 
and the productization and standardization did that did that was that a net benefit as far as like how much money up front versus over time compared to the other agencies that might be uh, acquired these days um yeah so i guess i will say that i like no matter what like whatever really whatever type of business you are building i would strongly recommend having like having recurring revenue having sops having like documentation for all of your processes like in a perfect world the business would be able to run without you and if it can run without you then it's then it is this asset that can be sold without you staying on for a period of time to like to fill that management role and or transition or or, or hand things off and I guess I would say that like, so like that is probably like the first most important thing. And cause cause then it impact, then you, you can remove yourself before you sell it. I mean, it, which is like what you're saying. Right. Cause you, you, and I, I know you either that, do it like, while you own your company or while someone else owns the company. Right. <laughs> right. But I guess also like to that point, like there, I know a lot of people like when they're ready to sell, they're like, I'm ready to sell. I want to be out of this. Either I want to retire or I want to like, I'll, I'll stay on for a little bit of a transitory period. And then I'm moving on to this next startup idea that I'm more excited about. And so like, if you want, like, if that's your mindset, if that's where you want to be, you have to really be able to remove yourself to make it viable to that acquiring company that it can more easily run without you uh, in, a, in a short period of time. So like, I will say like, while I felt like we definitely had those pieces in place and I could hand off uh, a lot of the business. Yeah, part of our what our acquiring company wanted was like they they really appreciated like our brand equity and like what I had put into it. And so, yeah, part of what intrigued them was my marketing acumen. And so I stayed on for a while and I lent that to our, our brand as well as their larger brand as well. So um, I know we're running short on time here is uh, the any when you look back now, because I want to be able to mm-hmm. give you a couple minutes to talk about what you're doing right now, too, and how you're viewing what you're doing now differently after your experience. But like when mm-hmm. you look back at the business that you had sold, Andy, is with your identity, you had mentioned identity and like especially you doing so much. Do you feel like is there anything that you would have done differently or like are you, are you happy with how things went down or like what kind of what overall like how do, you, how do you judge the whole experience? Yeah, I think. I think, I mean, I, I'm thankful. I think the experience went very well. I'm happy with how it all turned out. Like, I, I like there are, I don't I'd say that there are any particular lessons that like, like big mistakes we made in our process. Really, I feel like there are a lot of things that I, you know, like from building business, there are things I learned, but like there are things that I don't think I would have learned if someone would have like told them to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, like I, I didn't, I didn't know that like for us, paid search marketing wouldn't be a spectacular channel. That's something that like it took experimentation to, to figure out like things like that are just like the things that like, I'm kind of thinking about like, oh, I, I would have known now. But yeah, the only the only situation where where I feel like it, I, I say to myself, like, oh, I wish I would have known this years ago is uh, I wish I would have known that Bitcoin would be like 50 grand or whatever, <laughs> because in 2013, Oh no! This guy wrote an article uh, about a law firm that uh, was starting to accept Bitcoin, and on the record, this guy wrote, "I think that uh, you know, while it's interesting that this firm is accepting Bitcoin at ninety-two dollars per Bitcoin, I think it's overvalued." 
So, so I hope I, I think it's 39 I, grand right now, but it was 60. So it depends on what day you're looking at to feel uh, that I, kind of pain. And it'll, I'm sure it'll depend also what day, whoever is listening to this podcast episode. <laughs> right. Like if, if this episode goes live in two weeks, it might be back to 50, who knows, but like, but to, to my, to my, de, to my defense here. And if you, if you suddenly feel like I've lost all credibility with you as a listener, like, oh, this guy here, um, to be fair in like 2013, the only people who were using Bitcoin were buying drugs online. Um, <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That is a, I like that. I like that lessons learned. I should have, I should have bought Bitcoin and, or any, anything in the stock market in 2020. Yeah. yeah. But, um, uh, so we yeah. can, for, as far as now, Andy, just, no, I appreciate it. I, I want to be respectful of your time. As, yeah. as far as now and what you're doing with your business, like, mm. are you doing some, are you thinking about the business a little bit differently or how, like what behaviors or intentions do you have now that are different now that you're on round two? Yeah. So yeah, now I, I run a SaaS business. Um, yeah. A bit different from an agency, but taking a lot of the lessons that we learned in building a productized service business to us, like. There, there are new things that we're thinking about, like, like customer onboarding and like in-app metrics and user experience and things like that. But even so, there are things that like we taking from that, from, from that building that business, whether it's like content marketing and how to better like understand our audience and uh, understand what the pains that they're going through when they're looking for a product like yours, things like that. Like that is like, I found to be like super, super helpful in building this business and ha like having this marketing background also like extremely helpful i know like i know what channels have, like worked for a service business and while it may be different for a SaaS business still being in like the b2b space um i have a sense of, a better sense of like what channels would and would not work for us and importantly like what's scalable and uh, uh yeah like like for a SaaS business in particular in the early stages we do things that don't scale so that we can get to a point where we can do things that scale are you looking at the business as an asset and are you more like acutely aware of like, Hey, this thing, someone might want it at some point. And do you have a little bit more under like understanding of what you want with it? Or like, where's your head at as far as those topics? Yeah. A hundred percent. So like even, um, when, even when this startup, uh, was just me and my co-founder, I was still building, I was building out SOPs for how I was going to do different things from our, our marketing automation to our, our content uh, pipeline to like help tickets and, and things like that. And just regular operations, like those, like those traction sort of things, mm -hmm. the, like the KPIs, the metrics um, that, that was like, I think one thing that I, I really learned from the company that acquired us was like, they were, they're using uh, like uh, an operating system that I, we had pieces of that kind of, uh, before we were acquired, but I didn't really fully appreciate the scope of something like like traction or uh, Rockefeller habits mm -hmm. scaling up anything like that uh, beforehand. And now really, really leaning into that very, very numbers focused. So I like so I can know on any given day or week where there are challenges that that we can work to address. That's awesome. Andy, this has been an absolute blast, man. Um, last two questions on yeah. um, the first one, love to understand what people think the word intentional means because the name of the show. So what does the word intentional mean for you? Yeah. So intentional. So doing something in a particularly deliberate and thoughtful way towards achieving a particular end result. Boom. 
you nailed it, man. I love that. Um, that was very for, for on the fly and not having it at the tip of your tongue. That was pretty good. Where can people find you? And then we'll put all the links in the show notes. Sure. So uh, I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. There are not any other Andy Cabasos out there, I don't think. Twitter at Andy Cabasso, LinkedIn, Andrew Cabasso. Um, my startup today is called Postaga. That's P O S T A G A. And uh, that started about because of my experience in running an agency and doing marketing was. I wanted a more, I want to, I wish that there were a piece of software that could help me streamline my cold outreach processes, my doing cold outreach for building links so we can better improve our search traffic to also doing better cold outreach for finding partnerships, affiliates, and also, for example, doing PR outreach so I could pitch podcasters like Ryan to have me on as a guest, um, and also doing a cold outreach for sales. And so from my experience with, uh, running an agency and trying to do a lot of this cold outreach and not finding a good system for it, we built our own all-in-one platform and that's uh, Postaga. And if anyone in the audience wants to check it out, if you use a coupon code uh, podcast50, that'll get you three months at 50% off. That's awesome. And I was, uh, full disclosure, I was out on the website like, hmm, this is really interesting because that's all, all the strategies you're talking about, the things that we're looking at for Arcona. So very intrigued and I'm, uh, I'm pumped to dive in myself. Andy, this has been an absolute blast. Thanks so much for coming on and sharing your story. Of course. Yeah. Thanks, Ryan. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Andy. And before I forget, these interviews are now all on YouTube. So if you would prefer to watch these videos, go check out the Intentional Growth YouTube channel. We've also got the links in the show notes um, on the website and then whatever about podcast player you're, work, you're uh, listening to this on. And I think the the big takeaways that I have of, out of Andy's conversation is his focus on the niche and the customers he was serving was so beneficial for his scaling and the, the ability to pro project out and predict the cash flow and the revenue and how that worked because they had a system on the deliverables also helped them on the sales and marketing side to scale the sales and marketing because they knew what their clients needed. That's so important. I think when I look at professional services firms we've seen, if you are doing everything for everyone, you can't have the focus on solving one particular company or industry's problems and speaking to them and how he's doing with the content marketing that helps scale the business. But also, you're not able to then scale your services and systems and processes and margins and cash flow if you're not focused either. So I, I give Andy a lot of props to the have the focus and the intention that he did not behind the business. And if you want to check out the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment, it'll help at least give you some guidance on what do your financials need to be look, what do they need to look like and how to organize them so you can get this data. Because if you're still skeptical about this, once you see the numbers, you, you if you can't scale and, and project out your business model, that's one huge problem because then you know you don't know what to focus on and you don't know if you're growing a more valuable business, which is the whole point. So go check out the Intentional Growth Financial Assessment. It's 23 questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes and then you get all the videos to show you what good looks like so you can view your company as a financial asset and make the decisions like Andy was talking about in this episode. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week.